Hello and welcome to another episode of Media Buddhi A to Z where we discuss contentious words that are not well understood all with the intention of making conversation around these important and significant topics better I'm HR Venkatesh non-resident Bangalorean I'm Divya Chandra and I'm literally all over the place not in a bad sense literally I've lived in multiple cities but right now I'm in Delhi <laughs> that all over the place thing is an uncle joke dibya yeah whatever <laughs> <laughs> and i'm archish chaudhary and i'm based in kolkata and today we are discussing words starting with the letter h yes the words are homophobia hate speech horse trading and hacking and for the term hate speech we are having our first guest on the show dr ritambra manuvi of university college groningen and that will be a little later in the show yes and there's an interesting back story for why we asked her to join us uh, for the letter e we discussed how extreme speech is a better term than hate speech to describe pretty much the same thing but she called me out on twitter saying hold on not necessarily and we really appreciated that because one thing about this podcast is that this is a conversation and it's an ongoing conversation even after after the podcast is over and conversations are all about learning more we'll actually get to her in a little bit but let's start with the word homophobia and the other word homosexual because it actually makes sense to begin with that word first uh, and uh, let's turn to the friend of this podcast Blair Emani again Uh, and she writes in her book uh, and i quote there are infinite sexual identities and infinite ways to describe these identities um and it's important to learn to discuss it and what other words to use and she continues homosexual is not a neutral one used to describe people who experience same gender attraction in fact it is an archaic term that should be avoided There is a history of institutions like the American Psychological Association using homosexuality to pathologize same gender attraction as a non-existent mental disorder. Um unquote. So, you know, I, I think the term that is generally used instead is that is acceptable uh, these days is gay and lesbian, but even that has changed, right? Because many people now like to use the word queer and we'll get into the word queer in greater detail. and why uh, that's an that's an important word uh, when we reach the letter q uh, but you know archis divya i've known unconsciously that the term homosexual isn't used very commonly but the idea that the term is problematic and that people say it should no longer be used well that's something that is new for me interesting one other thing about this is that it's also because homosexual and the accompanying term heterosexual makes it seem like there are two poles you know there there are two different poles one homo one hetero but actually it's a spectrum yeah as you said divya this is a good time to point out that there aren't necessarily two poles and you know most people have trouble articulating the ideas of what it means to be gay or queer even to themselves you know even to acknowledge to themselves that queer people exist yeah excellent points both of you i mean that's the thing isn't it language and the right word is important to use because at one level some people may have no problem at all thinking of sexuality as a spectrum whereas 
at another level or rather other sets of people they're just beginning to acknowledge that sexuality for them is is a binary that is gay and straight uh, they're not thinking in terms of the spectrum and of course the large majority thinks of sexuality as being non dual that is as sexuality is being comprised of only one orientation that is heterosexual heteronormative right i think that's the technical term for it <laughs> yeah exactly heteronormative normativity uh, here's a good example or a definition of the word uh, from the website languageplease.org by vox and it's a, it's an interesting website you should check it out uh, and, and and this is the example and i quote uh, heteronormativity is the belief that heterosexuality is the default or quote unquote normal sexual orientation which in turn implies that any other sexual orientation is abnormal or unnatural it also assumes that binary genders are the norm and that anything else is an aberration So what about homophobia then what is it the encyclopedia britannica defines it as culturally produced fear of or prejudice against homosexuals that sometimes results in legal restrictions or in extreme cases bullying or even violence against homosexuals sometimes also called as gay bashing the term homophobia was co- was coined in the late sorry The term homophobia was coined in the late 1960s. You know it's worth noting at this point that gay rights in India have been evolving of course not so long ago it was illegal to be gay in India but finally in 2018 the Supreme Court gave a final judgment ending legal discrimination against homosexuality and I'm using the term homosexual in a legal sense here. Um, however there still isn't any gay marriage in India and while legally speaking being gay is not illegal homophobia is still widely relevant and in cultural spaces social spaces familial spaces so it becomes extremely difficult for gay people to come out and once they do to be accepted you know that makes me wonder what is the cure for homophobia and i say that in the most ironic sense because homophobes for ages have been trying to find a cure to being gay and we are at a point where we are trying to find a cure for homophobia that's progress for you time for our next word which is hate speech and the interview with dr ritambara was it a good interview yes it was and you'll hear it in a moment we are speaking with dr ritambara manuvi of university college groningen in the netherlands who works on the topic of hate speech Thank you so much for agreeing to join us, Ritambra. So, for to get into the conversation, uh, we'd first like to ask you what you do with your research, uh, teaching, and legal work at Croningen. So, at Croningen, uh, I am teaching uh, mostly courses of law and research methods, um, which basically puts me in a position where I cannot um, use wrong methods because then my students are going to look up to me. um in my research i look at disinformation and hate speech and i work in two different geographies uh when i speak about these two things uh for disinformation i'm primarily looking in netherlands um and the disinformation ecosystems in netherlands and in dutch language and when talking about hate speech i'm looking at uh india and the information ecosystems of hate speech 
in India. So in nutshell, that's basically my research. Ah, that's interesting. Thanks so much, uh, Ritamra, for joining us. Um, uh, you know, before we get into hate speech uh, and uh, how we define it and how we use it, um, can I ask you to tell us a little bit about your journey, so to speak? What led you to this very interesting and I would imagine a very difficult job? Uh, so it was very organic in some ways, I would say. Um, I moved to Netherlands in 2018. And uh, during this time, obviously, coming from India, I'm still holding my Indian passport, by the way. Um, I was, as always, very keen on what's happening in India, what's the Indian politics like, etc. And my PhD was very much on India. So I am, in that sense, trained into South Asian studies and South Asian discourses. Um, and towards 2019, when a couple of incidences happened, including the Citizenship Amendment Act, uh, that is basically where, where uh, my academic and my activist self sort of melted into a mush, <laughs> to, if I say it uh, right. Um, and uh, the reason was that I just, in 2018, I finished my PhD on Assam and I had the opportunity, a really, um, you know, great opportunity, in fact, I would say, to meet people who were, um, who were rendered stateless by the Indian state. Um, right. And these are the ones which are now featuring also in the 1.9 million people who are stateless in Assam. Uh, and I had the opportunity to really uh, have this, you know, ethnographic study going on there for a couple of months, um, several months, in fact, to understand that how the government reacts to these group of people who are affected by climate, who are affected by displacement, by floods, by poverty, by so many other factors. but how does the government respond to it? And what I came to realize is that despite all these development policies, all these you know, fancy um, chief minister relief programs, et cetera, the outcomes were not very much present on the ground. And obviously there's multiple reasons for that. But one of the reasons was also the propaganda and the vitriol against people who were considered to be outsiders and thus do not belong to the state and thus do not have anything to do with the state. And that led me to investigate propaganda further on. And incidentally, because of the CEA, I got a really good opportunity to understand this propaganda through the lens of information ecosystem on social media. Mm -hmm. And that is how this whole aspect of, you know, looking into political propaganda, politically led hate speech towards communities, uh, basically started. Interesting, interesting. Um, um, it's, it's, it's always interesting to know where, uh, you know, your research came from and where it led to. And of course, before we go ahead uh, and uh, set up this chat, I want to focus on how we ended up talking with you, if that's okay, a few episodes ago. Yes. Indeed, focused on the letter e as 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 you would remember uh, we picked up extreme speech uh, e for extreme speech and we spoke to uh, spoke of rather dr sahana odupa's work from lmu on using the term 
extreme speech. In fact, we'd done earlier a chat on extreme speech about nine months ago uh, in an event in, uh, about AI and extreme speech featuring researchers uh, from CIS India, Ashoka University, and IT for Change using this formulation of extreme speech. So anyway, after this episode, I created a short video about 90 seconds long on why it's a good idea to use the term extreme speech instead of hate speech um, because of a couple of reasons. Hate speech uh, being descriptive, but perhaps alienating people. And if you want to uh, people to change their mind and their behavior, maybe extreme speech is better. And then hate speech, another reason is, uh, I, I thought of it like this, hate speech is on an axis of hate and love. On the other hand, extreme speech is on an axis of extreme versus moderate. So I thought it might lead to a different way to frame these problems. And you wrote on Twitter uh, in response to that video, and I quote, um, extreme speech, like dangerous speech, has social implications. Hate speech has legal implications as well. Dehumanization is not just extreme, it is hate. Uh, um, so yeah, I, I suppose you can't use the word moderate in that situation. And you continue, uh, you said, as law scholars, we want to keep the boundaries clear because there are legal implications. And then I wrote back saying, thank you for this. Can you point me to any link or source? And you wrote back saying, uh, it is indeed an area that is rapidly evolving. So it is all the more critical to not weigh one taxonomy against another. There is a need to understand uh, serene speech from social perspective and for peace building. But for law, we don't want to be criminalizing everything. Uh, so I think there's a lot that you're packed into this. I thought it was a really fascinating exchange. And may I say, I mean, how nice that we have Twitter for this also, in addition to all the, the terrible stuff that we see on Twitter. Yes, indeed. And I think because you tag Sahana and because I follow Sahana's work as well, and I invited her in one of uh, the discussions that we were having on the topic similarly, um, uh, so it's, you know, she's a professional uh, uh, known person. Uh, so I think that is why it uh, followed in my tweet, uh, uh, you know, feed, the, uh, your your tweet. And uh, I think our own bubble in that sense, or the algorithm played us in a way for us to, <laughs> to come in first contact on that. But uh, yeah, and I, I, as much as I, and, uh, you know, appreciate Sohana's work and I admire her work and her anthropological work, I, I do feel that, you know, and, and I think I'm going to take the words from you here, Venkatesh, you said mm -hmm. that when we are talking about extreme speech, there's, there's this idea of peace building. And there's also like this whole thing about what you said that it the axis gets removed whether what is hate what is love and extreme and moderate so that that axis is uh, axis gets removed when you're talking about extreme speech but then in uh, in a legal domain we do need that axis right we can't go on criminalizing people just because they're moderately hateful <laughs> yes Oh, that, I mean, yeah. point very well taken and we're, we're happy that you uh, joined us to explain this in more detail you know actually i want to uh, go to a few more like a, uh, let's go back to basics so to speak mm -hmm. uh, i've heard three terms used somewhat interchangeably there's yeah. hate speech yes. there is dangerous speech there is extreme speech yeah. so from your perspective could you take us through what these are and you know, how they're different from each other. 
so I think this is more, again, uh, as I said uh, earlier in my tweet as well, and I think that was actually, uh, si like that was supposed to be my second tweet in because I did not have enough space in the first one. <laughs> sort of situations it was not like uh, a reference to the reading etc uh, but the 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 thing is that these taxonomies from our disciplinary stand of view they are still in the stage of like nascent development right so for example uh, sahana from who comes from media studies and anthropological studies is going to use um, extreme speech there is this whole project in US, which is using dangerous speech since 2000, early 2010s. Um, it's called a dangerous speech project. Uh, but when I'm talking about hate speech, I'm actually targeting and looking at speeches which have a criminal um, accountability to them. So these are in the nature of what your Indian penal code, for example, will say that this is. Uh, this is not allowed, this is criminal. So this is an incitement to violence or this is uh, um, incitement to genocide. Uh, and that is where I want your listeners to have a clear mind that hate speech is actually what one can perhaps come to the court with and say that, hey, this is a hate speech towards a community uh, this is being said with a particular intention, which is towards creation of harm. Right. That Got makes it. sense. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. It it makes sense. I'm I'm, I'm beginning to understand and appreciate the nuances uh, and the real spectrum of um, terms and frameworks that we use. Uh, I mean, again, for our listeners, and I found this interesting. Uh, we had a, a book that was recently uh, launched. It's called Social Media and Hate. It's by uh, Professor Shakuntala um, Banaji at the London School of Economics and Dr. Ram Bhatt. And yeah. in their book, um, so this is interesting. The So the way they define hate speech, and, and I'm quoting from that book again, they say no universally accepted definition of hate speech exists in international law even though both hateful content and its consequences have been all too clear, particularly during the 1930s and 40s in Europe and with the spread of social media and smart devices since 2000. Um, so this is an interesting quote. Uh, uh, do you have anything to reflect on that, uh, Ritamra? Yeah, I think they are um, uh, one thing that uh, Ram and Shakuntala haven't spoken about is the Rwanda because there was also a lot of incitement. So I, I, I mean, I don't want to pick up the quotes as such. I'm pretty sure that they have referred to in the book, but um, uh, so that is important. The other thing is that when we are talking about no universally accepted definition, I think we are in early stages of that. And we are in an early stages of that with the Rabat principle. And the reason that we, why we needed a specifically created norm or definition over here is because I think in the social media context, the companies sort of refuse to say that, okay, uh, we need a singular definition and therefore we should have a singular definition. So they kind of like created a, in some ways, a synthetic agenda over this, which I'm not sure how, uh, how beneficial it has been for the humanity as such. 
But mm -hmm. if we look at our laws, including the international law, there are um, definitions uh, or there are processes which identify what hate speech is, right? Otherwise, right. how would we come to a point where we can implicate Radio Rwanda in the genocide, the uh, Rwandan genocide, right? There was a basis for that implication. And, um, but anyhow, moving forward, now that we have established that uh, right now, let's assume that currently we don't have an international definition. I think then the work of uh, work that the UN is doing in context of Rabat principles, this becomes really important. Why? Because it does have a certain institutional sanctity to it in the terms of that it's coming from the United Nations. That means the, uh, the countries democratically elected governments are sitting and deliberating on it. Uh, what hate speech is. It's not coming from me, who's a representational of zero number of people in this world, or from you, Venkatesh, uh, in the similar situation, or anyone else. It's actually coming from countries who are being democratically elected and who are taking this forward. So there is a certain institutional legitimacy which the Rabat principles have. And uh, if you look at them, and I can open uh, open them perhaps and <laughs> read out from what the principle says. Oh, I, I have it with me. You can confirm okay. if that is true. So um, is it the Rabat plan of action that you're referring to? Yes, uh, and it's six a, it's... principles that it lays out uh, onto that okay. uh, threshold. And, and for the benefit of our listeners, uh, I think this is from the UN Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, OH. CHR and uh, basically uh, the plan is a, is is about uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Ritamra. Um, you know it's about a, it's an important step in clarifying what are state obligations to pro prohibit incitement to hatred, and and yeah. it provides like uh, protection to the rights of freedom of expression and freedom of religion as well. Is that essentially what you were referring to? Uh Yes, but there is also the state uh, national laws. They do have like Article 159, correct me if I'm wrong, of IPC does talk about also incitement to harm, right? Got so it. national legislations do have this contextualization of incitement to harm. Obviously, it has it in a more general context of uh, people inciting harm in a physical world and not so much on a virtual digital square. Uh, like social media, right? But that is because the laws were not formed with digital squares in mind. They were formed much earlier uh, when we did not have these digital square. But that doesn't mean that there is an absence of law. Got it. And yes, of course, uh, it just ties back into the fact that the word hate speech has legal implications. So one cannot wish away terms like that, which is the original uh, you know, perspective from which we got talking on Twitter and now we're having this conversation. I don't think I have many more questions. I, I probably do have uh, one sort of thought to bounce off you, which comes from you yourself. We were chatting before this uh, this conversation and you mentioned uh, hatebase.org yeah. in the United States. And on their website, uh, uh, they, they have an interesting entry um, um, and, and I'm reading out, uh, and the, the question is, what qualifies as hate speech? Uh, and what they say on their website is, hate speech is difficult to quantify, but most people would agree with Justice Potter Stewart's famous sentiment. I know it when I see it. 
uh, hate base. Uh, so this is a uh, this is an effort. So they define hate speech as any term which broadly categorizes a specific group of people based on malignant, qualitative, and or subjective attributes, uh, particularly if those attributes pertain to ethnicity, nationality, religion, sexuality, disability, or class. Um, and and uh, the other thing they say is that hate speech must be in the common vernacular. Uh, so um, interesting, they say an, an anonymous definition on Urban Dictionary or a word you heard once on Law and Order, which is a TV series, does not make for hate speech. So that's, that's also interesting. Uh, that was on the website. Any thoughts? Yes, and this kind of reminds me to um, uh, to a case that happened in India, actually, where uh, a parajative was considered to be an incitement enough for somebody to get, uh, uh, like, it was considered to be a rationale incitement towards commission of a murder, that the person who got murdered incited the murderer right. by using that parajative. Right. So, um, and this happened in India, and it was a very interesting case a long time ago, actually. And I'll be happy to send you the link later on if I find it. But we discuss. We used to discuss this in the in the um, in the law school as well on uh, can such perorative constitute. And that was the time when you know the the social media was fairly new. We were all on Orkut, and Facebook was just coming in. Um, so, you know, the idea that can a parajative lead somebody to get so um, infuriated that they commit a murder and then use it as an excuse. And the court did held in that case that say, saying that it depends on the context of, of the use of the parajative, right? So, um, and, and I think this is also what lies at the heart of the Rabat principles as well, that what is the context? How is the how is the receiver perceiving this information? Uh, why the speaker is speaking it? So all these entities become important thresholds to say what is hate speech and what is not. And it cannot just be, you know, some slang and abusive words and taken together and saying that, okay, this is hate speech because it's abusive. Because, well, coming from Delhi, we all know that uh, not everything abusive <laughs> is always said in hateful manner. Yes, right? yes. <laughs> yes, there are some words which we will not utter on, on this podcast, which yes, are used <laughs> as punctuation, really, which in certain contexts will be hate speech, but in other contexts could could almost be described as love speech. So yeah. <laughs> I, I think I think this is a, a decent note on which to close this conversation, Ritambra. It's clearly, I mean, the, the sense I'm getting is that um, uh, don't be in a rush to over-categorize things. Uh, this is an evolving field. But at the yeah. same time, frameworks are important. And they're important not just for uh, academics and uh, the research space, but also in a legal system. And also, of course, for people uh, who are, quote, unquote, arm admi and arm aurat, you know, and arm non-gender uh, or non-binary people. So, um, you know, having said that, I just want to ask one final question, because it might be of interest to our listeners. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the other project you work on, the London story, what it is, and, you know, uh, essentially what you're hoping to achieve? So this is a diaspora-led uh, uh, civil society organization that I've co-founded with members of diaspora, Indian diaspora in Europe. 
And uh, one of the primary goals that we had, um, I co-founded this in 2020, and one of the primary goals that we had was to counter the political propaganda and misinformation that is coming from India, right? And not just to counter what, uh, what the government, like not just to counter the whole persona of the government as created in the public imagination abroad, but also to basically just say the spade is a spade, right? So if there are human rights violations happening in India, there is, and there are evidences for that, then you can't cover sugarcoat it into Twitter hashtags and uh, wish them away. Um, the same thing if the hate speech is leading to human rights violation in India, you can't just uh, then uh, the government and the entities in India can't just wish it away. And that is the purpose where we uh, as London Story comes towards keeping an eye in India and uh, watching it from abroad. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it, it just makes sense. It, it, uh, uh, we'll we'll put the links to all the, the 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 places you work for and the London story as well on on in the show notes of this podcast um if there's anything else you'd like to talk about uh, do let us know if there any thoughts that you feel uh, got left out perhaps or maybe any follow up that you might have for people who are listening and want to follow up so um i do would like to make a request to the listeners that if you're listening um to this podcast and would like to contribute to the work that we are doing at London Story, then we are always open for volunteers and interns. And uh, we have created a nice working environment uh, at the foundation with a very young team. And uh, we would be happy to have a discussion. <laughs> yes, um, happy to spread the word around. And I think definitely we'll 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 leave the links on the on the show notes as i said and uh, we'll continue this conversation i suppose ritambra um yes. it, you know the podcast interview is ending but uh, this is an ongoing conversation and as you said all of these frameworks are at a nascent stage uh, so thank you so much for speaking with us thanks a thank lot thank you ritambra thank you for having me thanks a lot archish okay that was a pretty interesting conversation and I really hope we can have more guests in future episodes. So moving on, our next word is horse trading. What is it? Well, basically, it means buying and selling of horses, right? But nowadays, when you hear horse trading, it's, you know, usually in the political context. And that's when political parties and leaders, you know, they make really complex arguments in a very clever and shrewd way, you know, that they, they pull off these very complex negotiations and they try to always, uh, uh, you know, get one up on the other, you know, kind of get some kind of advantage from the from this kind of negotiations. And in Indian politics, you know, when you talk about horse trading, this idea of political poaching comes to comes to mind, you know, where one party tries to win over the other, uh, not by, you know, just fighting elections, but by also luring a leader from the other party to kind of destabilize them. But why is all of this called horse trading because historically trading of horses has always been a dishonest profession like you know when you buy a horse you can never truly know whether the horse is in a good condition or not so this allows for sellers to resort to dishonesty when selling at the highest price possible the process involves the sellers trying to get one up on their buyers 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, if you think about it, uh, second-hand car traders are also, they also have a similar um, reputation. Uh, but just to be clear, we are not actually comparing politicians to horses here. It just refers to corrupt and dishonest practices in politics. Um, thinking of examples, any examples coming to mind? Oh, so many, you know, in India alone. The big one that comes to my mind, though, is Maharashtra, the more recent one. And I think everybody will remember this. You know, in 2019, the state elections happened towards the end of the year. Uh, and, uh, you know, the BJP and Shiv Sena were allies in the NDA. They were fighting, you know, NCP and Congress in the UPA and other independents. But then after the election, uh, Shiv Sena suddenly broke off from whatever agreement they had, uh, you know, Somehow they weren't happy uh, with the with the way things were going. Maybe they wanted some kind of position. Maybe Uddhav Thakre wanted to be, you know, deputy CM or something. Maybe he was received, refused uh, for whatever reason. Shiv Sena wasn't happy, and they broke off from the the the, the alliance. And uh, in return of their support to make a Shiv Sena leader chief minister, you know, Uddhav Thakre, uh, the Shiv Sena made a new alliance, but not so fast. You know, I remember one night going to sleep, reading the news that, you know, Uddhav Thakre is all set to swear in uh, as chief minister with the support of NCP and Congress. Then I wake up in the morning and I read that Devendra Fadnavis of the BJP is, is chief minister and he somehow he has formed the government. Do you guys remember that? Oh, yes, that morning. Oh, my God, that was insane. Uh, NCP leader Ajit Pawar, who's basically Sharad Pawar's nephew, he took some NCP MLAs and joined the BJP overnight, right? I mean, what was that all about? Yeah, I remember that night pretty well as well. A uh, lot of calls must have been made between a few people that night for this to have taken place. This is what uh, we can call uh, treachery behind the curtains or horse trading. In this case, BJP trying to get one up on their opponents by using some kind of secret negotiation. Well, usually in horse trading, it's all about money power, right? Uh, and finally, in this case, of course, uh, Ajit Pawar got another call probably from his uncle, Sharad Pawar, and soon he came back home and we had a new government, uh, the Maha Vikas Aghadi Coalition government. And this is the Great Maharashtra Political Crisis Part 1. <laughs> that is why Maharashtra is such a great example, you know, of political horse trading in India. Because the story doesn't end there. So while this coalition, you know, trying to stay in power, is trying to stay in power, the BJP was having talks with a Shiv Sena leader, Eknath Shinde, as we know now. Again, behind the scenes, you know, for years, nobody knew about this. And then suddenly, one day, they took a bunch of MLAs from Shiv Sena to join the BJP, you know, and kind of reform the alliance. Then they went back to creating the BJP Shiv Sena alliance. So BJP was already the single largest party. You know, they had 105 seats. They needed just 40 seats. And these new MLAs suddenly gave them that. And so the short-lived tenure of Mahavikas Agadi came to an end. This was Maharashtra's political crisis part two. So basically, all the scheming and negotiation, and for the lack of a better word, trying to screw the other party over, this is horse trading. Any other examples? Well, you know, Maharashtra is pretty exciting, I suppose, uh, all, all heartbreaking, depending on where you, what your perspective uh, is. But the, the king of all of this is my state, which is Karnataka is probably the leader uh, in India among all states when it comes to horse trading. They even championed a practice 
that we call resort politics. Uh, I guess that comes under the letter R. But parties have now become so paranoid about losing their legislators that they've taken to taking all their MPs to a secluded spot outside the city. Usually it's a resort and Bangalore uh, has plenty of resorts in its uh, surroundings, other cities as well. Uh, and sometimes, you know, uh, it's pretty strict, these uh, these resort, uh, I, I, you can't even call them stays. Phones are taken away from the MLAs, but you know how secure that can be, really. It is a desperate practice, but not always successful. There's a handy little explainer in Deccan Herald called the History of Resort Politics in India. And it says that the practice originated in Haryana in 1982. And in 1983, and I quote, Chief Minister Ramakrishna Hegde, who led the Janta Party in Karnataka, had to save his government from being dissolved by Prime Minister Indira Gandhi. During the Assembly Trust vote, about 80 MLAs were sent to a luxury resort on the outskirts of Bengaluru to protect them from what he called the Congress vultures. Hegde eventually proved the party's majority. The state again witnessed a similar situation in 2019 after the crisis that emerged in the state following the resignation of 13 Congress and three JDS MLAs. The BJP, INC and JDS shifted their MLAs to resorts and in the end, the BJP emerged victorious. Yeah, that's an interesting piece on in the Deccan Herald uh you know, a website, I think, will we'll link uh, to that piece. But, you know, it's definitely worth talking about uh, is what is it in India's politics that allows for horse trading and resort politics uh, and many other uh, unique uh, points or, or uh, phenomena to emerge? What are the levers? What are the incentives? Do we see this in Britain and other countries? Britain, partly the source of our parliamentary style of government. Um, but I think this is something we will do when it comes to P for politics. Um, talk about what is uh, un- unique about Indian politics. The other thing I find tremendously irritating in India's politics is, um, you know, uh, MPs cannot vote according to their conscience uh, because, you know, the law doesn't allow it, uh, basically. If I'm an MP from a different party and the party issues a whip to me saying if you've got to vote in this particular way i cannot i cannot go against the, that the party and why is that so that's another unique aspect of uh, indian politics we'll get to that uh, but yeah yes and for that question it would be worth talking to an expert so if you're still here with us in the podcast listening do suggest some names for guests who can speak about the uniqueness of indian politics yes Please do that. We'd look forward to that. And with that, we are at the end of yet another episode of Media Buddhi A to Z. Any parting words before we go? Oh, yes. We want to discuss a few other words such as H for hacking and why it is such an important word and reality to get to know. And I wanted to tackle the term Hindu phobia. Is it a real phenomenon or a made up phenomenon? As someone said on Twitter the other day, it's a bit like saying white lives matter because the whole point of the black lives matter movement is that white lives have always mattered, but not necessarily black lives. Um, So similarly, is the term Hindu phobia, is it in the same sense? I suspect as much, but I don't want to completely close my mind to that idea. So we'll come back to this term after some research. 
Thanks for listening. Next episode we have the letter I. If you have any feedback, any queries, please feel free to write to us at podcast at boomlife.in.